Welcome to another episode of the SAEM Rams Ask a Chair podcast series. My name is Hamza Ajaz. I will be your host today, and I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Chris Fox, who is the department chair at UC Irvine School of Medicine. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. This is great. Thank you. No worries, of course. Let's start from the very beginning. What uh, drew you to the field of emergency medicine? Yeah, I think for me, the field of emergency medicine was always going to be about I wanted to have the skill set that I could take anywhere in the world to stop death in its tracks. I think I remember saying that somewhere in a personal statement. I just want those skills to say, to be confident that when someone is an extremist, I knew kind of what to do. I mean, I was an EMT and I knew some basics, but I wanted to know how to diagnose all 944 different things quickly and then stabilize those patients and then quickly move on to the next patient. The concept of that was so appealing to me. And then no matter what happened to the future of medicine or emergency medicine, that having those skills would basically translate with me anywhere I went. And so that's that's another thing. Even if I had left medicine altogether, just having those skills would be cool to have. And so that's that was my that's what drew me to emergency medicine in the first place. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I agree as well. I have a lot of those similar thoughts. Now let's talk about, you know, you've been practicing emergency medicine you know, for, for a while now. In terms of what initially drew you to emergency medicine, now what continues to make you still be interested in, in the specialty? Oh, I love the specialty still, 22 years in, into it. And I was just saying in an email to the incoming interns two days ago that while I was on shift, I worked three shifts last week, two at UCI, one on Catalina. And on shift, I had muttered to myself, On each shift, I thought it was weird the first time I did it, but then it kept happening. I muttered to myself, I would do this job for free right now. This is so much fun. Now, if anybody ever said that to my wife, I'll totally deny it. But I could tell you that the shifts to me are still a lot of fun. I love the camaraderie that I have with my nurses that I've had longitudinally working at the same place forever. It gives you a lot of that uh, awesome camaraderie. And I love the challenges that I face with the patients. And it's just still the job is the environment of care is getting harder and harder to practice in no doubt and i'm not trying to sugarcoat that seeing 70 percent of our patients in the waiting room and trying to manage care that is very challenging that being said you can still find those nuggets of emergency medicine happening every single shift and you still have time to connect you still have moments, I wouldn't say time, but I think you still have moments to, to connect with your patient in a very brief manner, but I, I zoom right into them, sit down. It's kind of like Avatar to put our tails together, and I get that maybe 45 seconds of just undivided everything, and that to me is still bringing me to, to work at every shift. Okay, all right. I like the Avatar analogy there. <laughs> Let's pivot a little bit to your fellowship. So I believe you did an ultrasound fellowship. Tell me what interested you in ultrasound initially and what led you to pursue ultrasound fellowship? It was a very pragmatic decision. I had asked my then chairman, Dr. Mark Lingdorf, what, as a resident, I asked him, what fellowship should I do to get a job here at UCI? I literally said that to him. I said, I don't care which one you tell me to do. I'll go out and do it. (laughs) I said, you think talks or peds or EMS? He goes, I think ultrasound. And I looked at him funny, like, ultrasound. Why would I spend all, I think I even said to him, why would I spend a whole year just learning how to use that machine? That seems, he goes, well, I'm just saying, I mean, I'm not saying I'll hire you back, but I think that's the future. And so I looked at, I interviewed, and, I, and this is before matches and everything, and I got into the one fellowship that year. It was at Christ Hospital, Advocate Christ Hospital in Chicago. And on the way there, uh, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It was just on a lark. 
like, we're going to go. My wife was like, where are we going? Chicago? Sure, why not? And so we just, we just got married, drove cross country and started the fellowship. And I just sort of became really quickly, really obsessed with the ability to use a portable imaging device to look past the skin line. And right away, it made me a better doctor. And so the, those quick few first index cases I was getting with it were really, during my fellowship, were really exciting for me. And that, that kind of stoked the passion for all things ultrasound. And that's kind of how it happened. So it wasn't, I fell in love with ultrasound one day on shift and said, oh, I want to learn this. No, it was just, I wanted a job in academic emergency medicine. And that worked. And I came back and kind of made it my whole obsession and started a medical student rotation in it, and which later blossomed into a four-year longitudinal curriculum for medical students at UCI. And I started a fellowship, and I'm graduating my 40th fellow this year. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Kind of crazy. Yeah. Congrats. That's awesome. Think back about it. Yeah, so that's sort of how that ultrasound game came about. Okay. That's, that's uh, very pragmatic, but clearly it's resulted in a whole career out of it, which is awesome. Talking a little bit more about ultrasound, it's come obviously a very long distance in terms of what we are able to do with ultrasound now. What what is the future hold? Like what is the future of point of care ultrasound in the emergency department in terms of patient care? Well, the machines continue to push the boundaries of technology with all of the artificial intelligence. We just purchased ten new ultrasound machines two weeks ago. And I should say, we purchased them in December, they arrived two weeks ago. And upon their arrival, and we looked at, we did a really deep dive, and, and we, we went after the machines that had the most number of FDA-approved artificial intelligence functionality to them. And within each transducer, you get a whole new set of AI functions that come up when you activate the transducer. And so that seems like AI has been kind of coming along and kind of fits and starts and now to see it FDA approved in every single one of my transducers in various forms is really exciting. I think other machines are gonna, other companies are all swirling around this and I think you're gonna see, a, it's gonna really hit the handheld market. It's hitting the handheld market as well, but I think you're gonna see that happen a lot more. Wireless handheld stuff will continue to push the boundaries. And you asked me what it's gonna look like in the emergency department. Emergency medicine is a leader for all of these other point of care specialties that are now starting to come online in all the different other fields. And I mean, we sensed it at our own hospital. A GI doctor is asking me, can you teach me how to do ultrasound of the bowel? And I'm like, well, I can do it for small bowel obstructions and appendicitis, but she wants to use it for really specific conditions like Crohn's disease. And so, I don't know how to do that. And so the two of us are going to go to a conference together and figure it out and kind of learn together. But I think the future of ultrasound is going to become a lot more, I think the future of medicine is getting a lot less in the hospital and is getting pushed out to between telehealth and between home health, however you want to define it, and all the little cottage industries that are popping up around those two, telehealth, hospital, home, hospital front door, all the stuff, dispatch health. I think you're going to see a lot more ultrasound in these areas being used. Even with telehealth, if the patient has their own device, the telehealth doc can work with the consumer or the patient. And so I think you're going to see a lot of consumer ultrasound start to ramp its way up as well, where because of all the AI and the way the machines can, op can basically direct their use by the operator with the AI functionality, telling them where to put the probe and how to turn it and those kinds of things. I think that's kind of where the future potentially is going with ultrasound. Interesting. 
Yeah, can you actually talk a little bit more about the, the AI functionality of the transducers you guys are using, as well as just the things you're exposed to? Because AI is being incorporated in so many different things in medicine altogether, but specifically with ultrasound, you talked about the transducer positioning, but what are other ways that uh, how AI is being incorporated with sure. ultrasounds? Well, it, it, it's all over the map. As I mentioned, it's everywhere. It starts with just showing what a good image is supposed to look like. So you're moving the transducer around until the image turns, until it tells you, hey, this is a good image. So that's kind of fun. And it has little arrows that tell you, oh no, turn it this way or fan it this way. So there's that. And then once you start to get the right image on the screen, it automatically knows to start recording those images. And so you don't have to actually record for it. It'll, it'll start to archive those images for you. So that that's really important, of course, for documentation and billing and everything. And, and then, Within each kind of transducer, you could break down the AI some more, like with the, the phased array, the cardiac transducer, you can, it's picking up beat to beat velocity time integrals, and, and it's showing IBC collapsability ratios, automatically finding it, and look, all the tools are jumping on the screen and doing stuff, it kind of makes it fun to watch, too. Oh, wow. <laughs> watch the machine do stuff that I used to have to do. And it does, with Linear Probe, it does a lot of great work with needle localization and guidance. And it does, it, it can see that it can find the nerves, it kind of outlines where the nerves are when you're doing nerve block, and you can colorize the nerve. It sees, it's weird, you put the probe on a nerve, and all of a sudden it's finding the nerve for you and kind of showing you where to go. And of course, you're gonna, when something's such a dynamic procedure like a regional nerve block, you're gonna obviously use all of your knowledge and back check the machine as well. But the, the needle localization and visualization, enhanced needle visualization, really, the, between that and the, the way it's bringing up the nerves, I think is really, really fun. It makes the procedure even more fun, as if it wasn't fun enough as it was. So, so that's really cool. And little simple things like bladder volume calculations, or when you have, when you're doing first trimester pregnancy, it'll show you the heartbeat. It'll just do the heart rate right on the screen without you having to measure anything with M-mode or anything. Well, back to the heart does really cool diastology uh, measurements, and so it kind of walks you through and does the pulse wave Doppler and the tissue Doppler and can start to calculate the diastolic function of the heart as well. So, I don't know, there's a lot in there, there's lots of fun tools to play with. Maybe I just got these machines, so I'm super pumped about it. I may hear this podcast a year from now and laugh to myself, like, oh, that was so 2023. But that's where we're at, and it feels like that the tech is really coming, so... That's awesome. Yeah, that's a lot of clearly exciting. Uh, you're, you're clearly uh, looking at you and you're very excited about what these changes are bringing to your to your department. So yeah. I hope to see that these expand across the country as well. That's exciting. Yeah, thanks for asking me these ultrasound questions. I thought it would be all chair stuff, but no, this is great. <laughs> I, I can talk about ultrasound all day. So. Exactly. I want yeah. to cater to your particular interests as well. And yeah. this is actually setting me up with my next question that I want to ask you. Now, we are going to take a step back and ask you more about the chair stuff as well. If you could please just walk me through your journey to how you became a chair. Let's start off with there first. Yep, so my journey to becoming a chair was extremely a reluctant one, I would say, if I had to to be, again, really honest about it. It was just like, I had a really good chair, and I was a vice chair, and I was very happy being a vice chair. That was, that was a role that suited me well. Allowed me to continue to really be active in the ultrasound game with my research and everything, and I was happily going to all these conferences and with my tribe, my ultrasound tribe, and really loving life. And I didn't need the headache of being a chair, and I knew that. At least I thought that at the time. And so my then chair put me through the chair uh, development program. And here at SAM, 
and back when I was vice chair, and it was fun. I, I was it was fifty one hours of in class time, and my cohort was amazing. I think they're almost all chairs now, and I learned so much from them and from Brian Zink, and Brian Zink specifically probably had the biggest sort of influence on me from a leadership perspective as somebody who I could sort of relate to and thought that the chair job seemed impossible. But the more time I spent with him, the more I kind of felt like it was a very tangible thing for me. And most of the parts of the job I, I felt I could do, there's a couple things that I was and still struggle with, but most of the job I thought, okay, I could do that, I could do that. Brian Zink is making this seem very doable to me right now. I could do that, I could do that. And so I think that chair down program for me really was the, the turning point. But I finished that program and it still was, and I still was very happy being vice chair. My chair was very much in place. And then he left the group and went to a different, to become chair at a different place. And I, he told the dean when he left that they should make me the interim chair. And they did that. And then I was interim chair for 18 months. And that was a long time to not to be in limbo because as an interim chair you are really you can't really make any like legit decisions you're sort of just keeping the lights on and trying not to screw up but then you're also on mailing committees and everybody's asking everything from you to fix and and your input and and in that role things went things went well and they elected not to do a chair search they talked to my faculty and everybody else they had a long time. It was like when I asked my wife to marry me, she was very hesitant. Honestly, it took her two days to say yes. But then we had an 18-month long engagement. It was the same thing. It was the same period of time when people were trying, testing me out. Like, is this, this guy really knows what he's doing? And so, and so yeah, but the interim role was fine for the first six or eight months, and I was getting sick of it. I wanted to just be the chair at that point. And, but that took a whole other year to, to happen. And so then, yeah, then I became the chair. And they put me through another leadership course, a two-week course that program for chairs of academic departments at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And that was two weeks in class, really intense, and really focused on my biggest flat spot, which is all things budgets and finances and all of that business stuff. And I learned, a lot, and it was very Socratic. I was the only emergency physician in my 50-chair cohort, and they were picking on me all the time. It's the one yard doctor having all kinds of fun with me. But it was great. I was super engaging. Of course, I was really glad I went to it and came back a lot more confident about the job. And so now it's been... If you count my if you count my interim years, it's almost been five years now in this position, and I absolutely love it. And it's the right job for me. It's the right fit for me. I would say the parts of the job that I thought were going to be hard, mostly the parts where I was kind of feeling really impostery about. I was not uh, the parts I liked the most. I think which is which is um, first of all all the the HR stuff, the the issues with. All that goes into problematic issues with personalities and stuff. I love all that. And then the interaction that I have with all of my bosses, the chief executive officer, chief medical officer, chief, I interact with them daily. And that is a surprising part of the job. I thought I was going to be more like a den mother to my faculty. And while I do that for sure, and, and that's turned out to be I would say harder, harder for me. That part of the job is is more challenging, I think, because it's really impossible to keep everybody 
100% happy, especially what every, what we've been through the last few years. And so that part of the job is has been difficult. But I've had a few wins here and there. Got got people raised. Got everybody raises. That was really helpful. And I recruited some really great faculty. And so that's been overall trending in the right direction. But that was a rough start because they all knew me since I was a medical resident. And so it's I think it's hard for them suddenly that I was the boss. And in, in, and in some ways it did damage some of my relationships with the people I was really close with in the group where I couldn't be close to them anymore as, as the chair. It's just you can't. And they do that, and I do that, and we have kind of a, an understanding about it, but we're not spending all that time we spend together. So that is that is a downside. That's that's a downside. But the hardest part was the budget, and our budget was in a really negative situation. I had to reverse all of that, fix all that, and clean all that up, and and that took a good two years to fix. Now we're knock on wood, we're in a stable platform finally. So. Do you feel it's helpful? It's just, you, know, you did a formal structured curriculum or a course at Harvard in regards to the financial aspect. Do you feel it's helpful to go through a formalized curriculum? Like in medicine, we have a very extensive clinical and scientific background, but depending on what your prior you know experience was in prior to coming to medicine, people don't necessarily get exposed to finances to the same degree as might be required in chair. Do you think it's helpful to actually go through a formalized curriculum, or do you feel like you can just learn on the job still as do just as well? Incredible question. I think... I used to have a, a view of this that was leaders are born and not made. You, you're a natural leader and you've got that, whatever that is, to be a leader. And and I feel very differently about that now. I think this, it, 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 the, the learning that I received in these in these leadership courses, they're the only reason I'm sitting in the, in the chair role, for sure. And I can continue to go and, and get more learning wherever I can grab it. And it's usually through... One of the societies has a section of leadership something or a medical direction something. and I, I jump on all of this stuff still. And then books, like the audiobooks on leadership, there are so much good stuff out there. And so I've, I've and, and, and those books I picked up in these leadership courses, they say, oh, you should consider this book. And then I, that author, and then it's like, I'm a little bit snarky about it at first, and then Halfway through the book, I'm drinking the leadership Kool-Aid. It's kind of embarrassing, but it really does. These are these are proven techniques to smooth out situations and and negotiate and maintain stability. And I think that's there's a there, there's a lot of training there. There's no way I could I could personally ever do this job without all of all of that and continue to get as much of it as I can. Yeah. So that's, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, pivoting to even something more like on, on a specialty-wide level now, with, in regards to the 2020 workforce, EM workforce report, it, it said that there was going to be a surplus of about 7,000 10,000 emergency physicians by 2030. What are your thoughts, what are your opinions in terms of where we're heading over the next seven years from now? Yep. When I went to ASEP, this last one in uh, San Francisco, I sat in that standing room only auditorium and... It was a very intense topic when they presented that paper. Basically, the, the authors got up and presented that paper. And you can imagine the tense. In, and my takeaway message was, number one, they they underestimated the amount of people who are going to either retire or leave the field during the next in few years. And I think, I think that is going to soften this surplus. That's one thing. And the, the second thing is, when you look at parts of the country, the, basically what the, 
what what they showed was that the further you get away from it, and I could tell you, we staff, my group staffs a cripple access hospital on Catalina Island. You, know, you can see it when the clouds go away. And it's a cripple access hospital. We're the only doctor on the island. There's no blood. And we were, we're doing all kinds of resuscitations and procedures. It's delivering babies and cricothyrotomies out there. It's pretty crazy. And so I can only imagine knowing once we took over that group, the previous locums doctors that were going through there, we heard all kinds of terrible story after story after story. It's been seven years now we've been out there, and people are still saying stories about how bad it was before they had board-certified residency-trained physicians, emergency physicians out there. And so in reading that study, if you look at all of the rural parts of our country and where we really need the kind of care that we're providing out on Catalina, I can tell you that that those jobs are, they exist. And the workforce, if you look at, if you include that, is, I think, matches well for what the needs, the demand and the needs. And so people might need to travel while they're looking for, while they're waiting for their dream job to happen. They might need to hop on a plane and go somewhere for a few days and work and then come back and have a few days off. I mean, that's, that's inconvenient, yes, but that job will be higher paying and it will be incredibly rewarding and challenging and fun. And you can get CT scans in 10 minutes in these critical access hospitals. You're not waiting, like my patients wait for five hours. And so, I mean, I don't know. I think there's a lot of, I think everybody just kind of needs to reframe it a little bit. Our specialty, we needed to provide enough emergency physicians to staff the country. And parts of the country are in rural areas. I think that that's something that we should, everyone should really consider because it really does. When I'm working on the island, I feel very different than when I'm working in my level one trauma center. I feel a lot is being, like I'm solving problems in a, in a, as an emergency physician in a rural hospital does. And it, it really does give you, uh, it's challenging, but it also makes you really feel like a ER doctor. It's great, actually. I think every emergency physician should spend a little time in critical access hospital. Yeah, and I think a lot of the, after the initial workforce report by uh, Marco et al., I think there was a couple other ones that came out that highlighted exactly what you're mentioning about that shortage in these rural areas as well as critical access areas, um, hospitals as well, in regards to a need for board certified emergency physicians there. Um, and I think that's where in the next five to ten years, a lot of the efforts can be transitioned and focused or highlight those, those needs as well as an area that emergency medicine uh, can tap into to provide care for those resources in those communities as well. Because it's, it's, the research has proven that that's definitely an area of shortage across the country in those particular settings, and we can definitely tap into that potential. And it's very rewarding, as you're, as you're mentioning as well. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for your time today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and getting to learn a little bit more about your, uh, your interest in ultrasound as well as uh, your experiences as a chair. Thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you. Appreciate it.